Hello, this is Ron Falk for the American Society of Nephrology on the third day of Kidney Week 2012. And with me today are three individuals representing different parts of the globe and different parts of the academic spectrum. I'm going to ask each one of you to introduce yourselves, if you would. Terry, would you start with who you are and what institution you live in? I'm Terry Watnick, and I'm at the University of Maryland in Baltimore. I'm Bill Bennett. I'm uh, Medical Director of Transplantation at Legacy Good Samaritan Hospital in Portland, Oregon. I am Pepe Remuzzi. I am the Director of uh, Division of Medicine, Department of Medicine, and Mario Negri Institute and uh, Hospitality Unity of Bergamo, a nice city in North Italy, not far from Milan. A beautiful place. Each one of you lives in a gorgeous environment. So this morning started out with a really interesting discussion by Eric Green from the uh, National Institute of Health, where he described where genomic medicine was and where in his view, it was going. It was a fast-paced, interesting discussion. Did you have the opportunity to listen to that, Terry? Yes, I did. What were your thoughts? I was impressed even over my short career, relatively short career, how far we've come. When I first started in nephrology, the Genome Project was just starting, and there were very few genes identified. And over the course of 10 or 15 years, I've seen the landscape completely change to the point where we're now thinking of using all of that information in terms of medical care, which was not the case before. I mean, that was his goal, is to be able to use genetic information from the full sequencing or next-gen sequencing to help elucidate clinical care. And he was so enthusiastic that I felt that we were really truly on the cusp of that. And I'm right. expecting that in the next five to ten years of my career, that will in fact be the case. What were your thoughts about that uh, talk this morning? Well, I think, you know, uh, medicine has changed more in the last 50 years than in the past 2000 probably. And what has changed, actually, medicine, it was really between 1930 and 1980 or 90. Everything has been changed there. We had, you know, the first anesthetics, the first antiviral agent, the first anti-cancer agent, dialysis, transplantation, something which really had an impact. And then, despite enormous discovery, there were not such an important things that in fact affected patients' life. Now, since this morning, but this morning was a nice summary of what happened. Now I think that uh, we have really our hand in something which will help us not just to treat population of patients as we did in the last few years with clinical trial, but to treat individual patients and to understand that by doing clinical trial, you may do very good for these given patients with that particular gene abnormalities and possibly harm to the next fellow who has a similar disease but a different gene abnormality. So it was uh, like opening a, a new world. What would you say to the skeptic who would say complex diseases, diabetes for example, the genome-wide association studies really have not provided hugely important genes, for example. 
and that perhaps there is an overestimation of the effect of genes uh, when compared to, for example, epigenomic events or even environmental ones. Well, by the way, epigenomic is genes, isn't it? It's the regulation yeah. of them. So, so if you include epigenetics in genetics, perhaps. Yeah, I think that epigenetics is a part of regulating genes. So it's just a question of uh, looking things from a different perspective. But to the skeptics, I would like to say, why don't you start studying rare diseases? Because if you start studying real disease, you will appreciate that probably complex disease is just a complicated interplay of different genes working the same way they work in simple monogenic disease that are per se are so complicated that it's not surprising that uh, it's even more difficult when you have diabetic Parkinson or Alzheimer. Yeah. But the story of rare disease really gives you some uh, unbelievable insight on that. So, Bill, one of the other implications of all this genetic screening, especially in a newborn, for example, are ethical, legal, and social questions. What happens if you do discover a genomic tendency? What does that actually mean? And how are we as a, as a community going to solve that for the given patient who may or may not want to know everything in their future? Fortunately or unfortunately, one of my areas of clinical interest is autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease. And so some of those issues, those ethical issues, have already come up because our current paradigm is not to screen, even though we know the genetic abnormalities, early because there's nothing we can do about it. And Terry works in the same area, but with exciting advances in basic science and like clinical trials that we've heard this morning, those questions become even more relevant because if you've got a treatment, then you presumably you apply the treatment early, even for a monogenic disorder, it's going to be better. That leads to screening and the, all the implications of screening. So you have a, a drug. The drug has to be extremely safe because you're going to take it for a lifetime. But people who have this disease, these types of diseases or their families are very prone to be active. We're going to need the help of ethicists and people outside of our own small world to help us work through those things. But I was thinking this morning as he was talking, even in polycystic kidney disease, where we know a bit about the natural history, we know the genes that presumably are associated with the disease or cause the mutations of which cause the disease, some of these ethical questions are still unanswered or even not even asked. Right. Terry, other thoughts about that? I mean, you deal with these genetic issues regularly as well. I think it's a really a rapidly evolving field, not only because there are new therapies on the horizon, which obviously changes how we talk to patients, but also the issue that was raised by Dr. Roper about the changing environment of, of healthcare delivery. Up until now, you might give somebody a pre-existing condition by sharing with them their genetic information, and there would be no treatment, and you might then change how they could get insurance, and et cetera. 
And now as the landscape is changing and we're reconsidering how healthcare is going to be um, delivered, those factors will also change how we counsel our patients. Today was a day when we learned about several clinical trials. Did any one of those capture your imagination? Well, I, being interested in polycystic kidney disease and being an investigator in the uh, Tolvaptin trial, I didn't know what the data showed until this morning. The data showed that in the treated versus the placebo group, kidney volume decreased relative to placebo with the drug and that glomerular filtration rate, which was a little bit unexpected, it slowed the decline in glomerular filtration rate as well. And this is a drug that's an antagonist to vasopressin. And knowing from patients I've treated with a drug or placebo, it, it makes you thirsty. And so a whole new group of challenges will arise if this drug is approved by the FDA. The Tolvaptin study suggests that there is an improvement in the outcome variable, which was diminution of volume yes. of, the, of the cysts. Yes. And this is really a pretty remarkable story from bench to now clinical trial. Yes, I would say so. Terry, you're another polycystic kidney disease maven. Does that mean now that everybody should be treated with Tolvaptan? I would say not. I don't think the data has been evaluated yet by the FDA, and I think that that remains. I would also say that there was a decline in the rate of renal enlargement, but there was still some. So I would say that we still need more. It, I don't think that this is going to cure polycystic kidney disease. And in fact, it would reinvigorate my interest in seeing continued basic investigation into the mechanisms because I think that there are more therapies that can certainly be brought to bear. What about side effects? These patients tend to, I was part in the investigation, some of my patients, in fact, they said, doctor, I don't want to be on this drug any longer because it makes me urinating uh, six or eight liters per day. It's very impractical for an advantage, which they said they don't see. I don't feel nothing myself so far. Now we have seen that there is an advantage, but how do you, how can tell to those patients tomorrow after I have seen, as you have seen, the results about it. I had a similar experience to Dr. Ramuzzi. I had certain patients who, who had a, a difficult time tolerating the side effects of the drug. To some extent, that depended on their career. So, for example, for those individuals who were participating who stayed home most of the time, it wasn't an issue. But for those individuals who either had careers where they were driving all the time, or they had frequent trips on airplanes, this was definitely a challenge. I think that Dr. Torres brought up the point that for right now, he's encouraging his patients to drink a lot of water, which would have the same effect. And I think one question we have to ask is, given the cost of the drug, how does drinking a lot of water compare? Because right. That would be the interesting study. Uh, I, I think there is a study I'm going to examine that effect. And at least I was told by a good friend of mine that it's happening in Boston. I'm not quite sure what institution or what investigator to test the hypothesis that decreasing vasopressin by the physiologic way of drinking several liters of water a day, no drug company is going to develop that, but, <laughs> but it may be a viable strategy. Maybe water companies. Yeah, water companies. Maybe those, those companies that, that do mineral water. 
Yeah, I told Dr. Falk that we should have ASN-approved water. We'll get a plastic bottles with water, the ASN logo, and sell it as a treatment. And no phosphorus. And then there won't need to be any dues for the American Society of Nephrology. Perfect. Are there other trials that you heard today that were of interest? Well, there is a great discussion that has been highlighted during uh, the ISN this year on whether those people who are suffering from uh, acute renal insufficiency due to a relatively rare disease called hemolytic uremic syndrome that, however, one can get from uh, vegetables not properly washed or from contaminated beef material. And uh, there was an epidemic of this stuff uh, in Germany last spring, and uh, almost 1,000 people needed dialysis, and 50 of those people died. Some of them have severe brain involvement, some of them brain and renal involvement, and there is the debate on whether a new drug, which is an inhibitor of complement, called ecolizumab, that is used with extreme success in a genetic form of the disease called atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome, can also help those very sick people with this infectious disease, this coli-transmitted infection. And this was an important debate. So should one treat hemolytic uremic syndrome, diarrheal hemolytic uremic syndrome, with uh, an anti-C5 drug? We don't know for sure the answer to that, but the very expert who had this experience in Germany, some of them, and I believe they were right, feel that we should for very severe cases. It's a new therapy for a frequently common disease, especially in the United States around the time of state fairs where kids get into contact with animals. Uh, It's a public health problem. It's a public health problem. There was another study today, a 4,000-patient study of the use of a drug that inhibits parathyroid hormone and its effect on all-cause mortality. What was the result of that study? Well, the thesis was that if you inhibited parathyroid hormone, you would protect against cardiovascular mortality in patients on dialysis, which, of course, is what does most patients on dialysis in. And the study was largely negative for the primary endpoints, positive in some respect for bone-related secondary endpoints, and possibly, if it were extended, observation period extended longer, could theoretically have some long-term benefit on cardiovascular endpoints. But I wasn't convinced of that. You know, there's an interesting issue in that study, though, in that the two groups differed in age by one year. Right. And when one apparently looks at age-related events, the older you are on dialysis, the worse you're going to do. Sure. It makes one concerned with aging on dialysis. But that may have been a confounding variable in that study. Right. Would that study will imply that PTH is not that important in the analysis population, which is the kind of message that derives to, to the population of people on dialysis from that? Well, that was, at least in terms of preventing cardiac death, it clearly didn't seem to be. It was a very well done study. 
carefully controlled, blinded, and I think the outcome was negative, which is important. But it did have positive bone. It had some positive bone sort of secondary outcomes, but it was planned as a study to test the hypothesis that reducing parathyroid hormone would impact cardiovascular disease, and that part of it was negative. So I think because of the problem associated with long-term bioanalysis, which is poor quality of life and the shortening of uh, organs for transplantation, people are now trying to create organs in the lab by starting from embryonic cells or stem cells, even IPS. There is a lot of research that is not conclusive yet, but showing that this is certainly an exciting way to go. And I think it's the first time in one of the, those meetings that uh, you feel in some sense that we are not far from a day when we will be able at least to repair some organs by the use of those cells. One possibility is on peritoneal dialysis that one might be able to repair the peritoneum. I mean, that would be a surface that dissipates its ability to diffuse molecules over time in some patients, and perhaps one could regenerate a peritoneal surface or a peritoneal membrane. We're not there yet, but But, but we are possibly less far than we were a few years ago. And possibly the ability to make blood vessels or at least line structures with endothelial cells and other cells that would function as a vascular access. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you have come from beautiful Bergamo. What's it like to come from Europe and visit the American Society of Nephrology each and every year because you have come here for so many years? I have been here first time in 79. And then every ISN beside 80. Everyone else meeting I attended, and uh, we were three Italians at the first time in 79. And now, in a regular meeting of ASN, you have something like 300, 400 Italians. I think that this is the meeting where nephrologists have been educated better than in any other meeting. And the influence that this meeting had on the European renal community has been just enormous. I think we wish to to thank you because uh, you have taken very seriously, like investigators, like I was in 79, and I was here and impressed by the possibility you can present the poster. Important people come, come here, you know. When I had the opportunity to have an award, I told the story of the Orti di Cesare. It means that uh, there were gardens uh, where the normal people could walk in and meet Cesare the Imperor. And this was my feeling when I was very young, coming to the ASN and seeing unbelievable person like Don Seldin or Gibbish or Barry Brenner coming and taking very seriously a very young person. This is something which is so emotional to me, even now when I am telling the story. Yeah. It was like that. It's still a, it's an interesting experience, but I, I think as a senior investigator, most of us learn tremendously from young investigators and trainees. I mean, I think it's a two-way street. We both learn a lot. Absolutely. And there is no barrier, you know. And this doesn't work like that normally in Europe, not in Germany, not in France, certainly not in Italy. This uh, lack of barrier by, by which a very senior person can listen and learn. 
from a young fellow who has the special technique or some enthusiasm, something which is unique of this meeting, and you have to keep that because it's so important and so unique. So, Bill, what would you tell a young investigator to get Bebe Ramutsi to come up uh, and look at their poster? Just walk up to him and ask him because he would come. And that's the beauty of this meeting. And I think is a, if I can be a little patriotic for America, is one of the characteristics of our country that doesn't exist elsewhere, where it's truly classless, at least in the scientific community, where anybody can ask anybody anything. Now, as a teacher, sometimes it gets old <laughs> being challenged all the time. But I think uh, that's one of the beauties of this meeting. So, Terry, you were having your fellow practice. What's it like making sure that a fellow presents well enough that it doesn't make you nervous to listen to them? I think it's a great experience for your fellow to present at a meeting like this. I think it's the highlight of the year. And that's what we do as mentors, is we try to teach them not only the science, but how to present to a national and international audience. And I have to say that my fellows, I encourage them all to come. I encourage them throughout the year to do their best. And then when we get back, we're usually quite energized to move forward after seeing all of the wonderful things and having that experience. I think it's a goal for the fellows to be selected to present here. How do you get them? So they're energized, of course, from coming yeah. here. It's energizing and exhausting for all of us. But <laughs> then how do you translate that energy into having the trainee actually take the next step? So usually when we get back, we usually do a meeting review, Ashley, and I have each of the fellows present. What was it that really caught your fancy at the meeting? And then we usually will sit down and say, okay, where are we going to go from here? What are, what are we going to plan for the next year? And that, I think, is motivating. How often do you come to this meeting and have an idea that you are sure you are correct about, but then realize that your idea may not hold water anymore? In other words, that your strongest beliefs are not as valid as you thought they were. 98% of time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's what is the most interesting part of this meeting to me, is that it challenges your strongest beliefs and makes you rethink them. And I think that classless description you had, Bill, is what, per what permits the challenge of one's strongest beliefs. Right. I I've been in places around the world where a uh, person who had a serious reservation about what the professor had said or thought wouldn't dare bring that up openly. That does not happen here, I don't think. I think that is one of the most important messages, is that it's important to challenge nicely, respectfully, mm -hmm. but still challenge even those who are more senior so that because I think senior investigators are interested in being challenged, especially by young people who may actually have a much better idea. So how does one balance either in an experience with an experienced investigator or a young ex investigator the excitement and on the other hand, perhaps a little bit of pessimism if one's sees a lot of studies that are negative. 
In other words, how does one deal with a negative trial? How does one deal with negative data and turn that into a positive next step? I would say that negative results are just as important as positive ones in terms of guiding uh, how we treat our patients. Dr. Green this morning said it just depends on how you look at the glass, whether it's half empty or half full. And when we get it, when we learn negative results, that also serves to guide how we treat patients. So I think that's why we do those studies, because important. But that's pretty hard for a young investigator who has to get a paper and who has the pressure of moving forward. It's easy for senior investigators to say, ah, negative data is good. But we all recall, even you, Professor Ramuzzi, when you were young in 1979, the adverse consequences of negative studies. I mean, it, that didn't lead immediately to a publication. This is something which I judge uh, negative from uh, editors of journal and our system of publishing in general, you know, because people tend uh, to have more attention among editors of the journal for exciting things and positive results. So I'm sure you know about a paper in PNAS uh, that has been recently published showing that uh, something like 40% of papers published in very top-notch journals like Nature and Science and PNAS and JCI show not to be confirmed. So I think uh, that the community, and I'm sure ASN can do something for their own uh, community and for their own journal should be aware that negative results are as important as positive results and that young people need not to go throughout this disturbing series of review and review and review and people that are asking you to do another paper in order to publish your results. I think we, we have the responsibility to change that, you know. You can destroy a young people's career not because the result is negative, but because the results is difficult to publish while those reviewers ask for bizarre things that have nothing to do with the paper, everything go in the supplement material, but you lose one year money for something which is fancy, is not related to the main message, is irrelevant. I think that we have great responsibility. And in my view, the ASN should have a section or something to discuss those issues with some people like you. You have been an editor, and you know those things much better than me. A well-designed study, if it's positive or if it's negative, is actually a useful Absolutely, next step. absolutely. And the editor has to have the personality to say to the, investig to the investigator, particularly to young people, look, this reviewer has asked you uh, 20,000 different things, or maybe 25 different things, just to concentrate on these three. Those are relevant. Forget about the rest. Don't lose your time. Don't lose your money. You have a nice study. You know, this is a reason of concern for young investigators, in my view. There has been a tremendous amount of interest in what has turned out to be not just a negative study, but perhaps an adverse event study. Uh, last year at ASN, there was a lot of discussion about, and a lot of optimism about a, about a drug called bardoxolone in the treatment of chronic kidney disease. That drug had adverse events, and so the clinical trial was stopped. What effect do you think that will have 
on subsequent studies in chronic kidney disease or even the whole concept of how bardoxolone may have worked? Well, as you know, everything which is apparently negative opens perspective. And I think that the paradoxalone study tells uh, several lessons to us. Number one, we have to do more animal experiments before moving to a clinical trial. If you look carefully to the animal experiment, the animal experiment were not encouraging at all for paradoxalone. People say, well, Rats are different from humans, but this is a lesson that those people who are against animal experiments or that tells you that you have to have more respect for animals not to do bizarre things that then cannot be confirmed in animals. Now we need rats and mice and possibly rabbits and other species before jumping to humans. The signs that we had in humans were predicted by few rats experiments that, however, will not be considered enough. And this is one of the lessons. The second lesson is that we had beautiful drug to, result, to retard renal disease progression in the past 20 years, those uh, inhibitors of renal angiotensin axis that really did an impact. So the second lesson is before looking to something else, try to use as best as you can the old drugs. Sometimes you have fantastic old drugs that just are not used in the proper way. Not enough doses, not enough uh, association with other drugs that may synergize with them, not used for a period long enough, not enough compliance. What, what was the result of the Alice Garen study? So, um, as I understood it, they were looking at the effect of allosterone in patients with type 2 diabetes who were already on the drugs that you mentioned, ACE inhibitor and angiotensin receptor blocker, and allosterone was added or placebo to those patients. So, um, that study showed that patients on allosterone um, had no change in their renal function, but there was a major ad a problem with adverse events in terms of the potassium. So the take-home message was that one has to be very cautious in adding that drug to at least that subgroup of patients on ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers. So although it was a negative study, I would say it, it does inform how we move forward. Unfortunately, not everybody who has diabetic nephropathy is on the drugs that we know have a positive effect, which is a practice pattern and compliance issue more than determining new kinds of drug. I want to thank all of you for participating in this podcast. Thank you so much. This is Ron Falk for the American Society of Nephrology. Have a great day.